This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, this is a pretty cool discovery, a 15th century manuscript. It has been discovered, and it's giving us a very rare glimpse into what comedy performances looked like in medieval times. So what's in the manuscript? Joining us to talk more about that is James Wade, Associate Professor and Director of Studies at Cambridge University's Girton College. Dr. Wade, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me on. Well, this is quite interesting. You don't often Often hear about a script, a rare glimpse into medieval live comedy, this manuscript. How did this all come about? Sure. So I was in the National Library of Scotland in the um, special collections reading room looking at looking at some medieval manuscripts. And um, I, I came across the one manuscript that had some, some comic texts in it, had some nonsense poetry. Uh, and this was, this was really unusual and it kind of caught my eye. Um, and and so I, I yeah I started to sort of to look into the manuscript and think about um, where these texts came from. And where did they come from? Well, they they came from a, a scribe named Richard Hege, and Hege um, lived in the you know second half of the 15th century um, in in or around um, a village of the same name in Derbyshire, um, so on 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 the the border with Nottinghamshire. Um, and he was a really interesting scribe and an unusual scribe in that um, he um, first named himself. We often think of medieval scribes as anonymous um, and simply sort of um, copiers of, of from one uh, pre-existing text to, to another. Um, but, but there was one line that, that struck me when looking at this manuscript, and it was a, a signature line at the end of a text um, of a, a, a nonsense poem. He wrote, by me, Richard Hege, because I was at that feast and did not have a drink. Um, and so it was a really interesting um, um, witness to one, a, a scribe showing, showing a bit of character and a bit of humor. Um, but then also it got me thinking about, about the origins of these texts. The describe here is suggesting that the texts don't, don't come from just a pre, pre-existing copy, but rather from, from live performance. So looking at what you've discovered, this is text. It's from 1480 or around that time. It's difficult to even imagine that. Yeah, we, you know, we, we know that minstrels um, you know, existed in the Middle Ages, that there were, there were lots of minstrels around and that they commonly performed at, at pubs and taverns and alehouses and fairs and baronial halls and royal courts. Um, but one of, the, one of the really interesting things about medieval manuscripts is that not one of them um, um, can we you know, confidently tie to an actual minstrel performer. So to have a, a kind of insight into um, texts that a minstrel would have performed is, is really rare uh, and exciting. And does this also give us a look or a glimpse at stand-up comedy and that type of comedy in its earliest form? Yeah, it, it, you know, one of the, one of the, the most surprising conclusions of, of of this research is is that it, it kind of changes the way we think about um, a, a repertoire for for a medieval minstrel. You know, we we tend to think that minstrels were performing Robin Hood ballads or you know tales of chivalry and adventure or accounts of great battles. Um, but here we see something much closer to stand-up comedy. Um, slapstick humor, sort of crude bodily humor, um, situational humor that, you know, that pokes fun at the audience and that assumes that the audience is kind of participating in the jokes. Um, and so, there, so a lot of the comedy is, 
is, is surprisingly similar to, to the, kind, the forms of comedy that we see today. And what does this manuscript tell us about minstrels and where they kind of fit into the medieval hierarchy, what society was like at that time? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, another interesting conclusion of, of this research is, is that, you know, this minstrel was, was probably, you know, only kind of semi-professional, you know, wasn't a big celebrity, probably had a day job, you know, working as, as a plowman or a peddler or, you know, involved in some, some trade or craft, and then went gigging at night. Um, and, and, and another thing that I suppose we witness about this minstrel is, is, um, that he was probably working a local regular beat of, of, of villages and, and locations and taverns and alehouses. Um, and, and we're pretty confident that you know, the, the main kind of venue for a minstrel would be um, a kind of drinking establishment, um, what we would now call a bar. I understand as well, this is now the earliest recorded use of the term red herring. Can you explain that a little bit more? So one of the texts is a mock sermon. Um, so it's a, 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 a kind of comedic performance where the minstrel would sort of assume the, the character of a priest and give this sort of absurdist or ridiculous um, sermon. Um, and, and one of the, the examples that, that's in the sermon is a story of, of three kings who have a feast. And these kings um, eat so much and they drink so much that their bellies burst open. And out of their bellies come uh, 24 oxen who are sword fighting. Um, and they and these oxen cut each other up so much that they're reduced um, to three red herring, um, and that's the end. That's the end of the story. So what we see is this sort of absurdist fantasy in which kings are are kind of you know uh, represented as being gluttonous and drunken, and the result of that is this sort of is this is this sort of worthless distraction. Um, the outcome of kings getting together is that you end up um, with red herring. And where has the manuscript been? I know we're getting this great look at it now, but it's been around for so long. How are these details just coming about now? Well, it's it's been extensively studied. I mean, you know, most notably by by Philip Philip more recently. Um, but it was, you know, it it, it sort of ex- it's post medieval life. It existed in in um, a, you know a country house library for for many years, and then in the early years of the eighteen hundreds, um, it was sent. To Robert Southey, um, who was staying with the Coleridges at the time, um, and and Southey didn't really know what to do with it. He, did, he you know didn't really understand what the texts were. He couldn't read it, so he so he went to Edinburgh and and, and showed it to Sir Walter Scott, who said, "Well, hey, look here, this is this is pretty interesting. We need to you know preserve this manuscript." Uh, but he didn't have the money to to buy it, um, so he he was trying to build Abbotsford, and he was basically broke at the time. So he convinced his fellow advocates um, to put up the money. And so that's um, how it got um, into the, li- the Advocates Library. And then when the Advocates Library was absorbed into the National Library of Scotland, um, it became part of their holdings. So that's how it ended up in Scotland. Um, and um, and it's, been, it's been there ever since. Well, it is a fascinating look into medieval times. Dr. Wade, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Former Governor General David Johnston will be on the hot seat at a House of Commons committee later today. He was tapped by the Prime Minister to provide advice on how the government should proceed when it comes to foreign interference. And as we know, it was his recommendation to not hold a public inquiry. Well, our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us now with what we can expect later today. David, good morning to you. 
Morning, Jill. So what else do we know as far as what we might hear from David Johnston, how things might unfold today? Well, what's going to happen today is the opposition parties, all three of them, are going to try to make the point that uh, David Johnson, you know, handpicked by Justin Trudeau to be this special rapporteur on foreign election interference, that Johnson is hopelessly conflicted, that he's in a conflict of interest, if not in a real sense, in a perceived sense. And let me explain what they're going to try and sketch out. Johnson, of course, was tasked with investigating foreign election interference and what, if anything, ought to be done about it. He concluded, of course, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, no public inquiry. Um, and he was investigating potential Chinese foreign interference that might have benefited the Trudeau liberals. But the opposition says, wait a minute, Johnson has a long history of social connections with Justin Trudeau and with Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, calls Johnson Trudeau's ski buddy. There's a little bit of truth to that, but it, it, uh, it, you get the point. And then Johnson was also a member of the Trudeau Foundation. And the Trudeau Foundation, we know, uh, though it has no connection to Justin Trudeau any longer, hasn't for 15 years, it's named after his dad, um, the Trudeau Foundation got a donation from a Beijing-backed businessman. So since Johnson was <laughs> charged with investigating kind of both those things, and he's got these connections to Trudeau personally and to the Trudeau Foundation, that puts him in a hopeless conflict of interest. And in fact, the House of Commons uh, voted and passed a motion last week calling on the government to essentially fire Johnson. Now, it's, it's what's called a non-binding motion. The government is not compelled to act on that particular motion, but it gives you a sense that all three parties, the Conservatives, the Bloc Québécois, and the NDP, all voted in favor of that. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, standing by his guy, says he has confidence in Johnson. Johnson has more work to do. Johnson is going to do public hearings over the summer uh, that will address issues around how we can improve protection of our system from foreign interference. Um, and that uh, doesn't seem. To, and Johnson himself says his mandate is from the government, not from the House of Commons. Hmm. So we know that Johnston is going to be asked a lot of questions uh, about his integrity. Uh, there are other media reports as well that he hired a PR firm to help him through this whole process. What do you expect uh, we're going to hear from him? Yeah, and we'll see if that uh, that uh, money spent on the PR firm, uh, money, of course, uh, that the taxpayer at the end of the day will be um, uh, covering. We'll see if that's well spent. And I, I suspect we, we got a hint of where Johnston's going to go um, from the press conference he gave when he released his report. And he was quite indignant at that press conference when there were any suggestions that his integrity might be in question here, that he was putting his thumb on the scale for one side or the other. He will point to a long career of nonpartisan sort of public service, starting way back in the day, Jill, with, you know, you're probably too young to remember, but there was a debate between John Turner and Brian Mulroney, in which Mulroney had that zinger, you know, you had an option, sir. Well, that was David Johnson, who was the moderator. Johnson went on to head some other public inquiries, he actually chaired a, the public inquiry into the Mulroney Airbus affair. Stephen Harper appointed him to that job. And at the time, a very young Pierre Polyev was, was you know, tape was recalled in which Polyev said that Johnson is just the perfect kind of guy. He uh, can be counted on to be impartial and independent. And of course, uh, it was Stephen Harper who appointed David Johnson as governor general. So, you know, Johnson, I think, is going to point to all those things that both, both parties on all sides have often looked to Johnson to moderate a debate, to lead an inquiry, and then to be governor general. And, and, and he's going to try and rest in his laurels there. That, and he'll probably point out the very specific connections to the Trudeau family. He's going to, he, he'll try to play those down. And he's also going to say, listen, being a member of the Trudeau Foundation doesn't amount to Hill of Beans. It's like you know, being a, you know, a card-carrying member of a local library or your, or your church. It really doesn't amount to much. 
Right. And so will this focus, do you think, then, all of the background that you just kind of outlined, but is this going to focus when he uh, testifies for what we're hearing is, is no uh, no less than three hours, will it actually focus yeah. on his role as a special rapporteur and, and the issues around this? Well, at the end of the day, this is where does the opposition want to go? You know, do they want to sort of play politics? I suspect they do. And they got three hours. And we should point out, normally committees meet for two hours and normally witnesses tend to be on the stand, if you will, for an hour at a time. So this is an unusual length. And the opposition believe there's a lot of ground to cover. In order to really get at the substance of the issue, foreign interference, remember Johnson's in Johnson's report, He said, I looked at all sorts of top secret stuff about foreign interference, but I can't tell you about it. Mm -hmm. I can't put that information on the public record because it's top secret. And many in the opposition say, you know, there's some things that you could put on the record or there's ways to be able to disclose some of this information without jeopardizing our intelligence sources. And so I think that will be the that's the substance of the meeting. And again, it's going to depend on the opposition members being well prepared and, and them doing their homework in order to maybe draw out Johnson to explain maybe in more detail about some of the conclusions he made and and why he made them. I think that beyond the the Johnston himself issue, I think that will will be something that might be of value to the whole country. But again, it's going to be up to the opposition to see where they want to drive this bus. All right. It's going to be an interesting, interesting one to watch. David, as always, thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Joe. Have a great morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that health authorities are seeing an increased number of is incidents in healthcare settings, hospitals, clinics, code whites, meaning when there is aggressive behavior towards healthcare workers. In Fraser Health alone, we've seen that number triple the number of calls from 2014, 2015 until the 2021, 22 fiscal year. And a new study that comes to us out of the University of Washington takes a look at clinicians reporting reporting methamphetamine as a significant problem when it comes to violence against staff. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Kaylin Folkley, Addiction Medicine Fellow at the University of Washington. Thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Thank you for having me, John. Interesting findings and looking specifically at the role of methamphetamine when it comes to violent interactions in healthcare settings. Can you take us through a little bit what specifically was this study looking at? Yes, and um, just to further clarify, um, the study that we're looking at um, referenced a previous study that talked about um, the perspectives of uh, physicians who thought that people who use methamphetamine um, posed an increased um, risk of workplace violence. But this study actually focused on um, the experience of patients who use methamphetamine and um, um, who have interactions with the emergency department and particularly the stigma that they experience there. Right. So kind of getting that, that other perspective to see if the two match. Exactly, exactly. So um, our major theoretical contribution to the literature um, really was that people who use methamphetamine um, describe a shifting line between the positive attributes and the negative consequences of methamphetamine use. So there's actually a more nuanced um, understanding of how um, people perceive um, their motivations and experiences using methamphetamine. 
I was looking at some of the, the findings and something that stuck out to me was the, the people that participated in the study not only talked about why they were using methamphetamine and perhaps why it was becoming they were using it more, but also talked about the, being stigmatized when going for treatment at healthcare, still going to healthcare settings, but feeling like they really weren't getting what they needed or they were they were being perhaps judged because of the use of methamphetamine. Is that something that, that, that was found in this study? Yes, absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, um, I work as an emergency physician and addiction medicine fellow. So both from my clinical background and from this research, um, I definitely want to emphasize how patients who use methamphetamine um, experience stigma in um, the clinical setting and how that affects their care. Um, the people we interviewed, and we interviewed 20 uh, people who use methamphetamine with recent emergency department visits um, who all live in the state of Washington, um, really described a number of things that um, uh, led to stigma, um, including undertreatment of pain, um, difficulty um, getting IV access because of previous injection um, drug use, um, receiving unhelpful referrals, and having traumatizing experiences while they were currently using methamphetamine um, and being in a really stimulating environment um, in the emergency department. And then does that lead to or is that part of why we're seeing an increase in in violence or an increase in violent interactions? Um, And uh, although the study didn't really um, look specifically at that, I I think there's a lot of evidence and conversation about um, increased workplace violence associated with the COVID pandemic, um, burnout among healthcare um, staff, um, uh, understaffing leading to all these things and untreated mental health. And I think two things that particularly um, were raised in this study um, from the perspective of people who use methamphetamine are that um, uh, it seems like many of you spoke to um, use methamphetamine to increase um, uh, to treat their mental health um, uh, because it's not being treated in other ways. Um, and that includes um, treatment for ADHD and also mood disorders. Um, and then also to help increase their function um, because they're dealing with particularly high social risks, like experiencing homelessness or um, other social vulnerabilities. So it really feels like there's a a tension um, for people who use methamphetamine um, that is derived from a lot of the social needs that they're experiencing um, outside the clinical setting. So this is kind of a perfect storm with COVID understaffing and um, untreated and poor access to um, mental health and substance use disorder treatment that may be leading to this um, intensification um, uh, that uh, plays out in the clinical setting. Uh, one of the quotes, too, from one of those who took part in the study uh, talked about uh, kind of that, that cycle, uh, saying that uh, they would get a bit of a bad attitude when going to an emergency department. Uh, and then the quote saying, if I know that this person's going to be mean to me because everybody else has been, then I'm going to be mean initially anyway. How do you kind of break that cycle? Or does this study give some insight into how that could be done? Yes, um, and I felt like that was a particularly impactful quote um, because uh, a lot of the patients we, or a lot of the participants we spoke to um, described a really long history of traumatic um, en- encounters in clinical settings, particularly in the emergency department. So I, I think generally emergency departments 
me speaking from my own experience, um, have not done a great job incorporating harm reduction principles in their clinical environment. So uh, I think this is a real opportunity to uh, use the experiences of the people who we spoke to um, to h- highlight the need to incorporate harm reduction principles that so many other community organizations um, are um, doing so well out, um, outside the clinical environment, including on safe consumption sites and um, syringe exchange services and um, other community organizations. Um, so I think uh, the way we break that cycle is by embodying harm reduction principles and actually just treating people like human beings, which they are. So, um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done. And does just one final question on this in that it talks a bit as well about participants that are interested in accessing treatment in reducing their use of methamphetamine. Did that come through or was that addressed with the participants in this study? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so there was some quantitative work that was separate from the study that uh, worked at syringe exchanges in our state um, that described people who use methamphetamine really wanting treatment and access to care. And I think that was highlighted in the study when um, we asked folks about what they wanted from their clinical um, care, particularly in the emergency department. And really they wanted resources, they wanted shelter, and they wanted treatment. And many highlighted the fact that there wasn't um, uh, an analogous medication to buprenorphine or methadone for people who use stimulants, um, at least in our clinical environment. And People want that. So I think there should be an um, increased focus on research and development um, and programmatic evaluation of some of these interventions that could be integrated into the clinical environment well, it's for these folks. Very, very interesting study and findings. Uh, Dr. Folkley, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what would you do if you were out paddling around or swimming, just having some fun in the waters around Metro Vancouver, White Rock, say, and what would you do if you saw a shark? Well, that is what happened to our next guest. And joining me now to talk about the encounter is Shannon Sayers. And Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Well, this is quite the story. I guess I should say uh, that uh, the shark was not alive, but still very uh, scary, a scary few moments. Take us back to uh, this day. You were out paddling around. How did things unfold? Um, well, it was, it was a little bit choppy that day. And um, so I thought, oh, maybe I'll just head out towards the pier from East Beach. Um, so... I went out there for about a good hour, and then I started to head back. And then all of a sudden, I, I was the only one out there. <laughs> and I look over, and I see something floating. And I thought, oh, wow, the reflection of the sun with the, the, the you know, choppiness. I thought, oh, maybe it's a seal. So um, it was bobbing up and down, and it was quite big. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go over and see it. <laughs> so as soon as I started to get up closer... Um, I kind of stopped and I was like, what the heck? Uh, That's not a a seal. And then um, I got up a little bit closer because I was getting kind of scared. And I thought, oh, my God, like, what the heck is that? I didn't know if it was just, you know, going to come to life or whatever or or if it was dead. But the closer I got, I could see, oh, my God, it is dead. I'm okay. I'm okay. But the first few, I would say, God, at least like 30 seconds of coming up to it, you're all like, Oh, like kind of freaking out, right? So I almost fell off my board. 
because um, I was trying to get some photos, and then I was kind of like shaking a little bit, and so I took a few few photos. But um, yeah, it was something because I've never seen a shark um, in my fifty three years in White Rock, so or ever heard of it. So wow, and so it must have been a, a bit of a relief when you realized it was dead, but still concerning. Oh yeah. For sure. And it was quite a good size, too. I was like, wow, after I really kind of, it was hard to tell in the photos that I took, but um, it was a really good size. And I think um, they were saying it was, um, was it the uh, conservation officer? I think they said it was about three meters in the article that was written up about it. Three meters. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big shark. Yeah, (laughs) I was expecting to maybe see like a little, like a fish or something, you know, (laughs) not not a shark here in White Rock. So I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's to do with um, climate and whatever. I'm not too sure. So, yeah. So, poor guy. <laughs> and were there any marks or anything on it that looked like it had been hit or anything that, that gave some clues as to maybe what killed it? No, but um, it, there was like a little bit of like rotting or something on the middle of the, of the body I could see like a little bit kind of like a little bit like rotting or something. So maybe, I don't know, it was hit or something or, and then dragged, you know, the, the tide takes it in. I'm not too sure. Hmm. Well, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, they've uh, identified it as the blunt nose six gill shark. And uh, like you said, so about three meters long. I guess the shark can be found along the coast of BC uh, with some other shark types, but I think it's quite rare what DFO was saying. It's rare to see it at the surface that they're usually quite deep, deep in the waters. And like you said, so you've never seen anything like this before? No, no, not at all. And I've actually, um, you know, I've been here most of my life, White Rock, but when we moved back here about nine years ago, I have been in the water, like, constantly with my, even with my two granddaughters, too, and so it's almost kind of a little bit, we're all kind of a bit nervous to go back into the water. I know it's a brain thing, we just have to get over it, but it's almost like you just, you're scared to put your feet in any, you know, deep water or something, I'm too scared now to put my feet and drag them in or something or even my granddaughters now, I'm going to be kind of just watching a little bit more. Right, because even after this encounter and the the shark was dead, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Well, if there was one, maybe there are more? Well, yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) So you kind of have to go with your intuition for right now. You know, until I feel safer, then it'll be a bit of a different story right now, but I'm just kind of in shock still from it all. Yeah, no, I think that's completely understandable, and, and, and a lot of people would be. I know there was another encounter, uh, some scuba divers saw another uh, shark of the same species, the blunt nose six-gill shark, but again, it was lower oh, down, wow. kind of where you would expect to see them, not on the surface. Not here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So have you been back out paddling since this happened? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try. Um, I mean... It's just weird. I guess because my I was more in a, a deep, a little bit more deeper water. So maybe if I go out, it'll just be around where I can actually see things underneath me. <laughs> right. It's safe so. to say this has been the most kind of jarring uh, discovery you've yeah. made while out paddling. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I've seen some seals. I've seen um, I haven't seen whales, but and then big, big fish too. Um, gorgeous purple starfish. Like I've seen all that kind of stuff because I'm like five days a week. I'm always out in nature. But um, no, nothing like this. So it is a little bit like, oh, three meters. 
<laughs> well, well, I don't want to see that again. <laughs> That uh, makes a lot of sense, and uh, we're very happy that you didn't fall off the board. I know. <laughs> I <just about> did, though. <laughs> well, Shannon, thanks for joining us and for telling us all about this encounter. Appreciate your time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, more questions are being asked about the clearing of tents on East Hastings Street a few weeks ago. And we're going to talk more about this and what people knew about shelter beds that were available at the time. Just before we get to our next guest, this is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim, and he was speaking with Jazz Joe Hall yesterday. Internal emails at Vancouver City Hall in the days leading up to the uh, April dismantling of the encampment showed that there would be not enough beds to shelter people who were displaced. Um, Were you aware of that, number one, and did you decide to go ahead with it anyway because it needed to be done? What was the sort of thinking behind the scenes? Okay, there's probably about three uh, different things that we have to cover. So first of all, uh, we did make sure that there was enough, you know, and I can't comment as to, you know, uh, what was in those emails, but I can tell you on the day of, uh, we were on the phone with the province, with BC Housing, uh, looking around, and there was you know, there was enough housing there. Um, maybe not right directly in, you know, two blocks away from the downtown east side, but throughout the system. Um, we In Vancouver. Yeah, in Vancouver. And so if you look at actually what happened, every single person that put up their hands uh, uh, for uh, housing got it on April 5th and April 6th. All right, that was Vancouver Mayor Ken Sims speaking on CKNW yesterday. Joining us now, Eleanor Sturko, BC United MLA, also the mental health addiction and recovery critic. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Jill, for having me. Good morning. Good morning. What are your thoughts on the email that does show there, the officials knew moving into that camp that there weren't enough shelter beds, there weren't enough places for people to go, even though the mayor there is saying everybody who needed it was offered shelter? Well, I think it's, it's disturbing, to be honest. It's, it's sad. It's um, inappropriate. You know, and I think it's deceptive, particularly of the provincial government. You know, our, our Premier David Eby had claimed that he would take over the management of the downtown east side last year. Um, he announced housing, which we know has not been made available. Um, and now that we know that people were displaced, it really shows a lack of compassion and, frankly, a lack of planning um, by the government. Even if there had been a number of shelter beds, though, and maybe this comes down to the type of shelter that's being offered, uh, the mayor also talked about the fact that often when those beds were being offered to people who were living in tents, they didn't want them. They said, uh, thanks, but no thanks, and, and given the choice, didn't go into the bed. So doesn't that make it that even if there was a shelter bed for everybody, there was a majority of people living in that encampment that weren't going to go anyway? Well, I think it comes down to planning. And really, it's an example of how the government has failed to do the proper work, make the proper contacts and use appropriate techniques to get people into the safety that they need. And I'll give you an example. That is that when the decampment and shift of people from 135A in Surrey was done, that process actually took more than a year to complete. It started off with outreach on the street, identifying people, building relationships with those individuals, and then slowly over time, um, you know, helping win those people over to the idea of moving away from that area and into services. We've heard in media reports and from the lived experiences of people that went through that decampment that they felt that they weren't given enough notice. You have to understand that we're dealing with people with sometimes very complex mental health and concurrent addictions issues, and they are going to need some time to uh, 
adjust. They may have trust issues. They may have trauma that they're dealing with. And I think it's important that a plan be put in place so that people's needs can be met. Simply showing up with a dump truck, garbage cans, and then telling people that they have to go into a shelter doesn't cut it. For some people, that's going to be okay. But I think that we've really started to recognize, particularly over the last couple of years, that when we're dealing with people with complex needs and with trauma and with with concurrent issues, that they're going to need to have specialized care in order to win them over and to guide them to services. And I, I get what you're saying as well, that there isn't the housing available, there isn't that infrastructure in place. But at the same time, one of the arguments used for this, and, and we saw from the decampment, was dozens of propane tanks and uh, what the fire department was describing as very unsafe conditions. So the the other option can't be just to leave them set up and to leave these conditions, can it? No, absolutely not. But I think, Jill, what we have to recognize, too, is we're talking about a government in its sixth year We're talking about a premier who used to be the housing minister, a premier who cut his teeth on the downtown east side with Pivot Legal Society, who surely must have known the complex challenges and realities of working on a project like decampment in the Hastings area. So, I mean, it's you cannot say that this is something that overnight occurred and suddenly there appeared, you know, dozens and dozens of propane tanks. This is something that has been festering, frankly, for the last six years under this government. And just to show up with no appropriate plan, insufficient housing, and in fact, not only to have insufficient housing, but then to double down in places like question period and in media quotes to be deceptive and say that that there was adequate housing, that everyone who needed housing was given it is irresponsible, and frankly, it's dangerous. I want to ask you as well something that was brought out yesterday. Rob Shaw was talking about this earlier today, and it was the news conference with the chief coroner and with our provincial health officer, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry. There was some suggestion about expanding safe supply, and Dr. Henry went so far as to say perhaps, this isn't the plan, obviously, but saying perhaps safe supply of drugs like cocaine and other illicit drugs could become a system similar to the government-run cannabis system. As, as an MLA, as, as a former police officer, what are your thoughts on the province even looking at going in that direction? Well, two points, Joel. I think one of the things that they very difficultly tried to bury in the lead of this story was that they're actually taking a look now at hydromorphone safe supply after concerns have been raised by frontline physicians, which is something that this party, the BC United, has been raising for weeks. The government has been in full denial that there's any issues with the program, but now suddenly uh, buried within uh, the statement by these health officials is, in fact, that they are going to be reviewing that after concerns have come forward. So that's a step in the right direction. You know, I think that this is a question for perhaps Minister Whiteside or maybe even Premier Eby. When we were in uh, budget estimates, I firmly asked a series of questions on the expansion of safe supply and whether things like compassion clubs and these types of things would be part of the next phase of the uh, pardon me of safe supply. And I got a firm and very hostile uh, response of no, that it is not part. So if in fact um, the words of these health officials about wanting to move towards um, you know a free market in the same way that we have legalized. Um, cannabis. It's very concerning. And in fact, um, it's opposite of what I was told and that the public of British Columbia was told during budget estimates this year. And so are you surprised to hear that then it's even being considered? I mean, some have gone so far as to say this is kind of the government taking over the role of drug dealer. 
<laughs> well, am I surprised? No, I'm not surprised. I think it's baked in ideology. Um, it's something I feel that a lot of activists, including activists that work for um, our very own public service, uh, would be happy to see. There are companies already positioning themselves um, to profit and to set up investment firms um, based on safer supply. I do think that we're making a very strange and bizarre attempt to supplant the illicit drug supply uh, with pharmaceuticals. I think it's dangerous. And if you look at the failure of the legal cannabis trade to in any way really supplant our illicit cannabis supply, um, you'll see that people don't want government dope. They prefer street drugs if they are entrenched drug users. Even people, only less than 40% of British Columbians who use marijuana actually buy it from a store. The rest of them get it from drug dealers, uh, illicit supply. So uh, I think that, gosh, a lot more study would have to be done. I don't think it's a good idea, but not, um, you know, from my policing background, I'm thinking of what we already see evident in the safe supply program, that there's concerns coming forward. And I don't see how we could possibly manage the risk of a, of a free um, market of publicly supplied addictive drugs. All right. Eleanor Sturko, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Always a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to talk a little bit about hero dogs and why there is a need for this organization, what help they are looking for. Carrie McBeth is joining us now, founder and executive director of Hero Dogs Pet Therapy Society. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Good morning, Jill. Good morning to you. Uh, I've seen some of the pictures of these dogs. They look absolutely beautiful. Can you give us a little bit of the background, though? What is the Hero Dogs Pet Therapy Society? Sure. So what Hero Dogs is, is we provide mental wellness breaks, or what I call a pause from the pressure, for our healthcare workers within the critical care units of hospitals in British Columbia. And how long have you been doing this, or has this been in place? This is actually a a newer venture for me, Jill. Um, My former business fell to the pandemic, and I've been volunteering in pet therapy for over 15 years. And through this program that they started at at Vancouver General Hospital, which was um, canine assisted wellness visits for healthcare workers, I saw an incredible demand and need, and also saw the profound impact that these dogs had on the mental health of our healthcare workers. So I decided to make that my my full-time thing and now it is our goal to help and to support in any type of mental health um, for our healthcare workers because let's be serious if our mental health the mental health for our healthcare workers is positive that's just better healthcare for everyone in BC. And how much time do the dogs spend with the healthcare workers? How does that what does that look like? Typically, a wellness visit, Jill, will be anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes. Um, Research has shown that after that period of time, the stress level of the animal will start to go up, and we don't want to put an animal into a stressful position. But sometimes, I know I've walked in with Dr. Burke before into VGH, and we walk right back out because he's having a bad day and he's not on it. So it's really important with our training that we teach our handlers to know their dog's uh, body language to see if they're stressed or not. That makes sense. And what do they typically do as far as what, is the, what does the interaction look like with healthcare workers? 
Sure. So for us specifically, we focus on critical care. So what we do is we go into the unit, and it's really beautiful, Jill, to see how smiles light up. Now, we're specifically focused on the healthcare workers, but you also see, um, you know, the families that are there. It's, it's a really intense um, area. So essentially, you'll go and you'll visit each of the healthcare workers because it's a one-to-one environment in critical care. We walk to them. They have a couple of minutes. Again, we call it a pause from the pressure, and it just lowers their uh, cortisol levels, puts a smile on their face, uh, and sometimes we've even seen that, that that some of the healthcare workers, Jill, have broken down. They're having bad days, and they didn't even know. So it, it really just is they're providing a brief pause. And where do you get the dogs as far as, uh, I know we've talked to other uh, organizations that have therapy dogs and service dogs, but where do the hero dogs come from? Sure. So we've actually now gone on a campaign. Again, we are a newer organization. And so we started Hero Dogs. What we do is we're putting it out there. And what's really beautiful, Jill, is is that actually some of the the healthcare workers are going out and recruiting for us. They meet wonderful dogs. They say, you need to join the Hero Dogs. You need to have this. Um, Obviously, we are now, um, the demand for the Hero Dogs, Jill, is, is incredible right now. We have a need to grow. So the hospital requests for us and these dogs have been remarkable. So for us, now we've actually partnered with Audlon Brown and they're providing us with the resources to be able to grow, to train and to place these dogs into more hospitals. So they're actually coming to us, but now we're putting the message out. We need more dogs. We need help for our healthcare workers in BC. And do you need uh, volunteers as well? Or how do the dogs learn kind of how to navigate the healthcare settings and how to offer up that support that people are looking for? Sure. So the first thing, Jill, uh, what we do as our organization is the dogs need to go through the uh, Canine Good Neighbor program. Essentially, it's an advanced obedience that the Canadian Kennel Club puts on. If they, if they pass that, they've been deemed, okay, we would like to join Hero Dogs. We go now through a process because it's not just about the dog, it's also about the handler, Jill. They're going into an environment that is high stress level. There's a lot going on, uh, heightened smells lots of loud noises. So we actually do additional training for both the handler and the dog to be involved in the critical setting. And when they, um, they've been deemed that it works for them, it works for the, the handler, it works for the dog, then they graduate and they become a hero dog and they get their hero cape and then we place them into a facility that's going to work for them. Hmm. And when you when you talked about people as well, or that you need more dog owners to join the team, are you looking for specific or people to make a specific kind of time commitment, or what does that look like? Sure, that depends on the individual, Jill. Any volunteering is is amazing. So. We have some going in um, weekly. We also have some going in monthly. Um, it, it's a little bit different in the hospital setting um, because shifts are changing. So if somebody needs to change a time or change a day, it's, it's not as detrimental as for the dog safe going into um, an elder care facility where they are relying on it. So it really depends on the handler. And we have a really, um, a really solid chat with them to find out what their schedule will permit. And we really try to place them based on that. And you mentioned Burke or Dogder Burke, the uh, the dog that you started with. What was that like when you started out with the first hero dog and, and started up this whole operation? It was amazing. We were part of a pilot project that actually started just before COVID, and it was um, with Vancouver Coastal Health. And this program was again to put dogs into the hospitals and specifically in the critical care. Um, then the pandemic hit. 
there was a hiatus on the dog going to the hospital. But when we went back, Jill, it was remarkable. And right away, it was really cute. One of the ICU docs actually named Burke Dr. Burke <laughs> and uh, claimed he had a, a PhD in woofology. So it, it, it was a beautiful environment, but I saw a need, Jill. It was truly remarkable. And as much as Burke uh, is great, he loves it. Um, he's a Bernese Mountain dog, a big love bug. I saw an opportunity to grow this and to truly take care of our healthcare workers through this type of program. And I decided, hey, let's do this. And Hero Dogs was born. And have you run into any scenarios where, uh, I mean, I love dogs and, and would love to be part of this, but have you run into any scenarios in healthcare settings where maybe people are a little uneasy or a little fearful of dogs? Absolutely. And we really take note of that, Jill. Certain areas we go into where there are people. And it's our responsibility as hero dogs to ensure that when we're going in to visit in these particular areas, that everybody is okay with the dog. And again, we train our volunteers to be mindful. And if we know somebody, don't make them feel guilty and just let them go. It doesn't have to be a big production. Um, you know, there's enough people within that setting that are just beside themselves when the dogs walk in, Jill. So, um, you know, it's our responsibility to know and to steer clear of those individuals. It's, it's actually really quite funny, Jill, to watch once the dogs go into the hospital. The smiles on the faces just as we're going through the hallway. So it's not just the healthcare people, but it's also people who are there, patients, families of patients. The stress level just goes down and the happiness hormones are just completely boosted. And are you looking to expand the number of hospitals or how many are you in so far? Absolutely. VGH is our home hospital, Vancouver General Hospital, and it's the goal of Hero Dogs to have a dog in every critical care setting in a hospital throughout British Columbia. That is our ultimate goal. And we need dogs um, and we need some partners to help us achieve that goal. All right. So where can people learn more if they're interested and maybe seeing if they can volunteer or interested in learning more about Hero Dogs? Where can they do that? So our website is herodogs.org, and dogs is spelled D-A-W-G-S. And for those who just want to see some of the work that we're doing, our Instagram is herodogs. And it's really beautiful, Jill, just to see the power that these animals are having on the mental health of our healthcare professionals. Well, it's a great initiative. And like you said, you can just kind of, in many cases, see the stress melting away from people. Uh, Carrie, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Thank you so much, Jill. Have a woof-tastic day. <laughs>